Memorial Day is when we commemorate the fallen soldiers of our country who sacrificed their life for our freedom. Many unsung heroes gave their todays so that we can have our tomorrows. One of the most moving scenes in the movies that illustrate the spirit of a Memorial Day was the last scene uh, of the Steven Spielberg's movie, Saving Private Ryan. Do you remember the last word of a Captain Miller to Private Ryan on the bridge? In his dying breath, Captain Miller told Private Ryan, James, earn this, earn it. And then camera zooms in on James' overwhelmed face about gratitude and guilt of a survivor. And a half century later, elderly James Ryan visited the grave of a Captain Miller in Normandy with his children and grandchildren. There in front of a grave, he asked his wife if he had led a good life and if he was a good man. When his wife was surprised to hear such an obvious question, and then she realized why he asked in front of that tomb. She firmly and calmly answered, you are. Memorial Day is a more than barbecue party and the beginning of a summer. Though it is the official beginning of the summer, it is a time to remember the sacrifice of others who made our lives possible. In the lieu of a Memorial Day Sunday, I want to share with you a song to remember from Book of Psalms. Today's song to remember is a Psalm 117. And this psalm is a very unique because it is the shortest psalm among the 150 psalms. Only two verses. It is actually the shortest chapter in the Bible. You can easily memorize Psalm 117. So in the next you know, house church meeting, people who missed today's service, you ask them, how was your Memorial Day weekend? If they ask you back, how was your Memorial Weekend? You say, oh, over the long weekend, I memorized a chapter in the Bible. And uh, Psalm 117 is a song to remember, not simply because it's the shortest and the easiest to memorize, but because it has an ultimate biblical theology. Let me tell you. I don't use those words lightly. Ultimate biblical theology. Matthew Henry, a well-known biblical commentator, in the past said, there is a great deal of a gospel in this short and sweet psalm. He was right. There are a lot of gospel in Psalm 117. In fact, Martin Luther, who preached through the book of Psalm, wrote 36 pages on this psalm. I don't have 36 pages of sermon notes, so you can be, you know, you can, you can calm down. Charles Spurgeon, in his massive seven-volume books on Psalms, The Treasure of David, found the five major doctrines in this psalm. Another renowned Old Testament scholar, Derek Kidner, said, this shortest psalm proves to be one of the potent, most potent, and the most seminal psalms in the Bible. So now... Let me recite the Psalm 117. You can see the map. I mean, you can see the screen. Praise the Lord, 
all you nations, exalt him, all you people. For great, for great is his love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Amen. This psalm, for me, is a sermon to our spiritual summer. And here I find the three truths that calls people of God for actions. And if we hear and obey threefold calling of the gospel in Psalm 117, I believe that this summer will be a great summer. We will have a most meaningful summer, more refreshing and liberating than just returning to normal in-person summer activities. So, first one, the who did the psalm invite to praise the Lord? The most surprising and almost shocking call of Psalm 117 is whom it invited to praise the Lord. Verse 1 said, praise the Lord, all you nations, and then all you people. The Hebrew word for the nation is a goim. It's a plural form of a goi which means Gentiles. This word was used over 550 times in the Old Testament and very often as a pejorative term. When Jewish people actually uttered this word goim, oftentimes it was a racial slur. Because Jewish people thought the Gentiles, they ate non-kosher food, they ate an unclean food, therefore they are unclean. And oftentimes, Jewish people call Gentiles dogs. And the Jewish people in the Old Testament, we have to recognize that they not only believed the monotheism, but they behaved as the most mono-ethnic, condescending people toward others. So when, you, when we say Jewish people have a, almost a xenophobia, that is an understatement. And also the word for people is a umma, umma, which literally means a tribes, a group of people. So these two terms refer to national ethnic group of people. Together with the goim and umma, Psalm 117 makes it very clear that God wants praises from everyone everywhere. And then that's why the word all was repeated twice. All you nation, all you peoples. And we have an important observation to make here. That is, this is God's direct invitation for Gentiles for worship, his worship. This is a first divine, direct, global invitation of a worship from our God in the book of Psalms. Many find the Psalm 117 surprising because most calls of worship in the book of Psalms were directed to Jewish people or Israelite. And when Gentiles were mentioned in the book of Psalms, they were more like a background extras, not as a main essential participant. The typical expression of a Gentiles used in the book of Psalms is like this, that I will, uh, I will praise the Lord among the nations or among the Gentiles, because they are scattered among the nation, among the Gentiles. And or, I will lift up the name of the Lord above all nations, above all the Gentiles. Never a psalm directly called Gentiles to praise the Lord. 
Do you get that? This is a very important historical and biblical fact. Praise the Lord, all you Gentile, all you human tribes in the world. Because Psalm 117 makes us this rare radical call of all Gentiles to worship the Lord Yahweh, some biblical scholars see it as an eschatological psalm. Pointing, this psalm pointing to the end of history when God vindicated Israel and all Gentiles acknowledge the faithfulness of God. Well, I must disagree with that interpretation. The God of Old Testament was a God of everyone from the beginning. God is not ethnic God, but everyone's God. From the beginning, God has a Gentiles in his mind. Look at the Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. God said, God told, when God called Abraham, God said, I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you. I will make your name great. And there will be a, you will be a, a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples, that all peoples, Ummah, on the earth will be blessed through you. And once again, when God chose Abraham and his descendant, Listen to me carefully. God was not making an exclusive commitment to Israel, but God was making exemplary commitment to Israel. Know the difference. Israel was not the only people of God. They're the first people of God. And through them, God wanted to draw all people to him through the exemplary examples and or exemplary relationship of Israel. So, election in the Old Testament is not about the predestination as some people understand. I said this before. Election in the Old Testament is a question about vocation. Biblical election is always ethical, evangelistic, and the call of a duty. Biblically elected people always know God's goodness and greatness, and they want to make that known to other people. So later in Genesis chapter 18, tells us an interesting story. Before God sent an angel to judge and punish Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 19, you know what God did first? He visited Abraham. And there, God said this, Genesis 18, 17. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. God shared his painful heart to confront and condemn the sinful Sodom and Gomorrah with Abraham first, because God saw Abraham as his partner to save and bless all nations on earth. Once again, God of Abraham is not an exclusive God, but rather is an inclusive God. You know, what does it mean our God is an inclusive God? That God loves everyone, both good and bad, beautiful and ugly, rich and poor, name it. All kinds of people, God loves them. As God wants to include everyone in relationship with him and his worship, we, those of us know God, are called to invite others to know and worship Him. So let me ask you this question. What do you want most from this summer? 
What excites you about the return of a normal face-to-face -face social interaction in this summer? You know, for me, actually, the most exciting thing about this summer is that a dinner that I'm praying and planning for my VIP. Because the last year, that was a chance, and then pandemic came and took that away. So this year, this summer, finally, I want to have a good dinner with my VIP. I've been waiting for this for a whole year. Thanks to God, my VIP did not disappear. Still on the radar. So sometime in the summer, I'm going to have. I really pray this summer we invite others to also join us. Join the house churches. Don't invite them directly to house church. You have to meet them in person, in the individual lunch or dinner and then so forth, and then invite them to the house church. And then I pray that we all invite uh, others to praise the Lord. Now, Psalm 117, second point, also tells us why everyone is called to worship the Lord. And before I go to the, the second calling, let me ask you a question. Why does God want everyone to praise him? You know, this is a simple, uh, basic question some people misunderstand. So, for instance, do you know Julia Sweeney? Do we have the picture of Julia Sweeney? Julia Sweeney is a comedian, actress, and a writer best known for her four years run in the uh, character on Saturday Night Live. Do you remember the gender-confusing path? You know, she's the one that, who played. Julia Sweeney grew up in the uh, uh, Spoken Washington as a nominal Roman Catholic. Her last memoir, Letting Go of God, she raises a common problem or misunderstanding for contemporary atheists. There, the question was, why does God want or seem to have a need for our praise? And this is what she said. She said this, it's quoting. I'm living my life as a person who accepts the natural world. That means she believes that Earth came to exist coincidentally as a pure physical cosmic accident, and there is no such a thing as a creator or intelligent design. The whole idea there is a God who cares whether people believe in him or not. Like, why would God care if people believe in him or not? That was one of the many things I found so shocking reading the Bible. First of all, how insecure God is. I mean, God is so insecure, he needs everyone to say, you're number one, you're number one over all other gods. You're the top dog. And like, it's the most insecure character. How do you answer or respond to Julia Sweeney's take on that God is the most insecure character and that's why God desperately demands our worship? By the way, she read the Bible. And the lesson for that is don't just read a Bible. You know, if you have a question, you have to come to pastor or, you know, some Christian to ask. She just made her own, you know, conclusion. Now, I want you to, I want you to listen to a uh, uh, reply of a C.S. Lewis in, to the same question, to this question in his book, Reflections on the Psalms. C.S. Lewis said this, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy 
because a praise not, not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. Delight is incomplete till it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not to be able to tell anyone how good he is. You know, C.S. Lewis is a writer. So for him, good writer matters, right? And to come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and to have, and to, have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than uh, for a tin can in the ditch to hear a good joke and find uh, no one to share with it. You know, parents understand this. You take your kids to like a place like a Grand Canyon, but your kids said, eh, and then they keep on playing the, you know, games. That would be, you know, disappointing, right? That's what C.S. Lewis is saying. Now, the Scotch Catechism, uh, by that he means a Westminster Confession, says the man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to glorify is to, uh, fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. God wants praises from us, not because he's insecure, but God wants us to enjoy him. You know, in order to enjoy someone or something, we need to know who that person is. So this is the second point, second calling. That is investigate who God is. Investigate God, not just invite other people, but we ourselves must continue to investigate who God is. By the way, when you find something great, it is a human nature to talk about it, regardless of other people's reaction. Recently, somebody in my family is into thrifting. I didn't know there was a term called the thrifting. But every, you know, you know that person is really busy because she's a mother of three. <laughs> and then, you know, her husband is a pastor. But anyway, she, and then she's a full-time, you know, a nurse. She's incredibly busy. But every little time she can save, she goes to thrifting. And when she comes back, it's like she found the treasures of uh, you know, uh, 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 life. And the question she asked, guess how much this is? Tax says $300. Guess how much I pay? You know, that is a human nature. When you find something so good, you want to praise it. You want to express it. That is a worship. So we cannot worship God unless we know God. In the verse 2, Psalmist brings out two cardinal attributes of God, characters of God, that is a love and faithfulness. And before I go into that, I want you to know why only this love and faithfulness of God. 
Old Testament scholars think that Psalm 117 summarizes all the characters of God in these two words, love and faithfulness. And actually, this is a summary of a summary. <laughs> this, yeah, it's really almost like a lazy person's theology. But it's a very good. It's the essence of all essence. Because if you look at the Exodus 34, 6, it says the, uh, when God passes in front of Moses, do you remember Moses asked God to let me see you? Glory, right? And when God passes in front of Moses, the cherubim proclaim the Lord, Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Do you hear? Compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. So, Old Testament scholars think that uh, this is a summary of the famous Exodus 34, 6, love and faithfulness. Now, let's look at the, what love and faithfulness is. Love, in Hebrew, is a hasset or kaset. It is uh, translated as loving kindness, mercy, love, grace. This word was translated in five, 156 different English words in the English Bible by one commentator's you know, account. And the most common uh, English translation would be steadfast love, loving kindness, mercy, covenantal love, loyal love. And the many think that hesed is the Old Testament version of the Greek word, the key word in New Testament, agape, the unconditional, unconditioned love of God. And then God's, you know, has said, the love of God, love, God's love toward us is a great. The word great in Hebrew is a gava. And gava, the great, is a military expression. And the other Bible passages, the word gava was translated as a prevailing. For instance, when Noah's flood happened, the water prevailed the earth. Gaba was too great for the earth. Do you remember in Exodus 18 when Moses was leading the fight against the Amalekite? Every time Moses raised a hand, Israelite was winning. The word for winning is a Gaba. So with this word that God's love toward us is a Gaba or great, the psalmist was trying to portray that God is a mighty warrior or champion. Yes, God's love is strong. It wins. It never loses. At the end, God's love wins. And that's why we will shout for joy. The end waiting for us is a victory. And the word for uh, faithfulness is emet. It's uh, translated a truth or firmness, and God is committed to the truth. God is thoroughly faithful to the truth. And faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. The word endures forever is basically one word, eternal, olam. God is eternally truthful. And I don't know about you, but I'm so glad God's truth is eternal. And God is thoroughly truthful, and just. It gives me a great hope because no one will ever escape the
the truth of God and truthfulness of God and justice of God. You know, over the weekend, I heard the sad news about Syria that uh, Bashar Assad, the son of a dictator, he was elected again for seven terms, seven-year term for, for Syria. You know, he, he caused a civil war that killed more than 400,000 people and made 5.6 people fled from the country and 6 million people internally uh, 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 mislocated. And they are going into the sixth decade of a dictatorship. People like that, where is the justice? At the end, there's a divine justice waiting for all of us. And that's why I'm so grateful. I'm so encouraged that God is committed to the truth. And God will bring out the justice to end. And let me say this. Every attribute of God gives us a hope. Every character of God is not just a divine quality and character, divine quality and attribute. It actually shapes our life and vision. For instance, you know, when, when God is, you know, omnipotent, why is, why we praise God for being omnipotent? Because it's a good God. God is love. Don't you want to have somebody who loves us to have a power? God is, a, you know, I, we praise God's wisdom. Why? Even when I lack the wisdom and that when I don't know, what, you know, when I'm upset that some uh, uh, street smart people, greedy people make unfair gains in life, I don't have to worry. At the end, the wise God will set everything right. What about the, one of the key characteristics of God, self-existence of God? You know the word the Lord today is a Yahweh. And Yahweh simply means I am who I am. You know what I am who I am means or I am what I will be? God is a self-existing God. Everything else in the universe is not self-existing. We are all finite, dependent, fragile beings. We cannot exist by ourselves. Right? Only God is a self-existing being. It means that everything and everything, you know, everything is depends on God. And uh, for that, I want to share with you uh, Augustine, St. Augustine's reflection on this confession, the, uh, book two, about uh, the meaning of a self-existence to him. So let me just read one more quote. I could not therefore exist, could not exist at all. Oh my God, unless you, are, you were in me, that God allowed me to exist and sustain me. Or should I not rather say that I could not exist unless I were in you, from whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in whom are all things, he's quoting Romans. Even so, Lord, even so, where do I call you to? Since you are in me, whence can you come into me? For where outside of heaven and earth can I go that from thence my God may come into me? Who has said, I fill heavens and earth? You know, God who made the heavens and earth and everything, he made me. My existence from, comes from God, self-existence. 
Have you wondered when you walk, especially, you know, at night looking at the stars and then all by the size of a universe that we are living in, where does everything come from? Why there is something rather than nothing? Everything that we see, feel, and smell, you name it, is all from God. God is a ground of being, as some theologian says. So every attribute of God leads us to praise Him with joy and hope. And this, you know, more I know about God's attribute, the stronger my prayer will be. You know, the reason I resist the worldly, you know, uh, ambition and the demonic temptation and selfish calculation is because God is truthful and faithful. Every attribute of God becomes my adoration and also foundation of all my virtues. Amen? The more I know God, the better I become. Just like somebody who was happy to thrift a great deal of stuff. And, uh, well, I shouldn't go there anymore. Okay. So second summer call for us today is to investigate who God is. And for that, I want to tell you again, Forest, we have uh, several Bible studies, homegrown Bible studies, Cornerstone Bible Study, Livingstone Bible Study, John Discipleship 1, John Discipleship 2, and the seven realities of experiencing God. I really encourage you to take one of those classes. We're going to start registering next week. And uh, some of you already took them all. Why don't you volunteer to teach or co-teach some of these classes? Because guess what? When you teach, you learn more. And if you somehow find in teaching adults intimidating, why don't you serve our children ministry or youth ministry? You know, they seriously, children and youth, they don't care about your knowledge, biblical knowledge. They care about your love and care. Let us investigate who God is. As we know God more, our worship will be deepened our joy will be greater, and our faith will be ever stronger than before. Now let me bring the conclusion and the final call. Guess where we see Psalm 117 again in the Bible, especially in the New Testament. Do you know Psalm 117 is inferred, you know, referred in the uh, uh, New Testament? In order to find the Psalm 117, we must know one important fact about uh, uh, Psalm 117, that is a liturgical context. Psalm 113 to 118, the six Psalms, 113 to 118, are called the Egyptian Hallel, or Egyptian Praise Psalms. Why they call Egyptian Praise Psalm? This is, these Psalms, they, they, the Praise Psalms, Israel is saying during the Passover. Usually after Passover meal, Israelites, they sing Egyptian Hallel. They're bragging how wonderfully, faithfully, powerfully God delivered them. And they, they also tell that God is not only for the Israelites, for anybody who yearns for God, he will fight for you, join us, kind of, you know. It's a kind of, a, you know, bragging, inviting at the same time. That's the liturgical context of Psalm 117. And now, you look at the, you know, Mark chapter 14, there, 
After verse 24, after Jesus said, My blood, this is my blood of covenant, which I poured out for many. And he said, Truly, I'll tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of mine until that day that I will drink anew in the kingdom of God. After Jesus established the uh, uh, communion, guess what? Verse 26. When they had a song, a hymn, they went out to Mount Olive. Jesus and disciples, they sang Psalm 117. After the Last Supper, on their way to Mount Olive, where Jesus prayed at the Garden of Gethsemane, and those of you who took a Livingstone Bible study, you know that Gethsemane was a battle of human redemption, was raged. That's where Jesus prevailed with his prayer of a total self-surrender to God, that not my will, but your will be done, Father. And that's the third call of today. Inaugurate God's reign with Christ this summer. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Psalm 117 because he embodies God's hesed and emet, God's grace and love and truth. And he proved it through the crucifixion and resurrection. You know, later Paul, Apostle Paul, citing all the scriptures about God's inclusive loves and Jews and Gentiles in Romans, 7, Romans chapter 15, guess what? Paul also quotes Psalm 117. So let me read our last passage today. Romans 15, 7. Accept one another, then just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on the behalf of God's truth, so that promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, that moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Paul tells us here, Christ fulfilled God's promises made to Abraham and all the patriarchs, that Gentiles and all nations will be blessed. Christ opened the direct access to God for all sinners, including Gentiles, so that they also might glorify God for his mercy. And then Paul enlisted several famous quotes for the universal mercy and glory of God in the Old Testament. So continuing, Paul said, As it is written, therefore I will raise you among the Gentiles. I will sing praises of your name. That comes from 2 Samuel chapter 22, 50. This is the last word of King David. King David wants to praise God among all Gentiles. And then, verse 10, and again he said, Rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. That is Deuteronomy 32, 43, the Moses' final message before his death. And once again, Moses said, Rejoice you Gentiles, with God's people. And then verse 11, and then again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, let all people exalt him. What is this? That's the Psalm 117 we just read. And then he talks about, once again, the Isaiah 11:10 in verse 12, that the root of Jesse will spring up, and one will rise to rule over the nation. In him, Gentiles will have hope. So in conclusion, let us celebrate the summer 2021 in the spirit of Psalm 117. You know, practically speaking, we celebrate Psalm 117, number one, 
parting with our VIPs or MIAs and others. We are party, not anymore, we are party saint. You know, Jesus loves party, right? That's how the Pharisees accuse him. You know, we are party people because our Lord is a life of a party, seriously, eternal party. And also let us praise God with a deeper study of God's character and God's person. Let's pray.